Well, this morning's topic has a lot to do with jealousy in regard to ministry. Jealousy in regard to maybe churches as they at times compare with one another. Ministry as far as, or I should say jealousy insofar as what we might consider what is successful or unsuccessful for a church or a ministry or a person in ministry. You know, John, after making plain who Jesus is in chapter 1, he shows his authority in chapter 2 in signs and wonders and miracles, and then he demands the radical rebirth in chapter 3, and he also shows that he is to die for our salvation in chapter 3. He now turns to the witness of John the Baptist. He wants his readers, that is, John, the writer of the gospel, wants his readers uh, to know that in light of all this, John the Baptist never unwavered in his commitment to Christ. And it seemed no better than in our passage this morning. So go ahead and open your Bibles to chapter 3. It's a rather large passage of Scripture. We're going to be reading verses 22 through 36 this morning. The Gospel of John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Let's go ahead and stand together at the reading of God's Word. It begins with the setting. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing, that is John the Baptist, was also baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. This apparently is before he's thrown into prison, obviously. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Numbers. They got a lot of people coming to him now compared to you. Verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, that would be the best man, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these wonderful words of eternal life, these truths that have come down from heaven and now written 
in the inspired word of God, written by your spirit, moving men to pen these living, alive words that pierce our minds, our souls, and our hearts, that draw us ever so closer to you. These objective truths of Scripture, which are trustworthy with or without us. But Lord God, your Spirit testifies and witnesses with our spirit that this Bible, our Bibles, is the Word of God, and it's alive, it's breathing, it shapes and molds us further into who you want us to be. And Father, you give us the beautiful example of John the Baptist as ministers of the gospel. Father, may we walk in the ways that he walked and follow his example. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now I'm going to say up front, this message is not just for pastors, elders, or those speakers or teachers or speakers. It's for everybody. Because everybody should be involved in ministry in one way, shape, or form. Everybody's been given a gift, right? Okay? You've been given that gift to minister to other folks in the body of Christ in particular. And so in that regard, for sure, this passage of Scripture applies to all of us. Okay? Now, I want to give you four things this morning out of this passage. It's a four-point outline. Number one is the setting. We get the setting in verses 23 through 26. And in verses 27 through 30, we get the solution, the solution that John the Baptist gives. In the setting, there is this little spark of controversy that kind of is looming on the horizon, and then John gives a solution to it in verses 27 through 30. But let us be of no surprise, because in 31 through 35, what John does there, he just brings our attention right back to the Savior. He is the purpose of ministry. All ministry, all churches... Everything we do should focus on Christ. And then finally, we get the purpose of ministry, verse 36, the gospel. We minister the gospel. We minister so people will believe that Jesus is the Christ. Those are the four points this morning. Let's begin by looking at the first one in verses 22 through 26. 22 through 26. It's no surprising, okay? It's not surprising whatsoever that it's such religious activity that was going on and remember, God was silent for 400 years. Jesus' ministry is just starting. You had John the Baptist, the forerunner. And so all of a sudden, you've got all this ministry going on. And it's no surprise that controversy breaks out whenever the ministry of the gospel begins. That's just a fact of life. That's the enemy. I mean, here, they have similar ministries, right? Both were what? Baptizing? We see that in verse 22. Jesus' disciples, they were baptizing. We see that John the Baptist was baptizing. Verse 23, John also was what? Their ministries were what? Very similar, very much the same. As a matter of fact, they were also ministering in similar geographical location, the area of Judea. So they were baptizing. They were doing it in the same area. And both of them had what? Followers. Both of them had disciples. So I, you, you got to get this picture of both of them were doing the same thing in the same geographical location, so no wonder controversy was possibly could loom around the corner or on the, was on the horizon. And all it would take was a little spark to get it going, right? It took one Jew. We don't know who he is, but he's right here in the text. Look at verse 25. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Notice it wasn't Jesus' disciples. He's successful. He's getting all the people now, right? 
Let me go talk about purification with John the Baptist's disciples. Let me talk to them about this purification. Now, John, the writer of the gospel, never explains what this purification is. Okay, I think it had to do something with what Jesus taught earlier on in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, you must be born again. Remember, I think it's in verse 6 and 7, uh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed, I say to you, you must be born again. Excuse me, back up to verse 5, he talks about water and the spirit. Okay, It has something to do with what Jesus taught Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is going and telling others about it. So what Jesus taught him is kind of spreading, okay? It's demanded. It's, it's, there's no question. You must be born again. It's not optional, okay? And it involves water that is symbolic out of Ezekiel 36 to what? Be purified. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, well, the Jews in their system thought they had to go wash their hands and wash the cups and everything before and after every meal for purification reasons. But Jesus wasn't talking that kind of purification of the, the body. He was talking about purification of the heart, which only God can do. That's the new covenant. That's Ezekiel chapter 36. And so I think from there, it was kind of like this purification thing was spreading. And how did what Jesus tell Nicodemus, how does that jive with or agree with the Old Testament teaching on the purification and ceremonies of purification, right? So I think that's what was going on there. However, John really never tells us. Here's why. Because to John, that's not what's important here. The importance wasn't, the importance is not what was, what was the theology behind the argument or the controversy? What's important to John right now is how do you correct it? Because problems are going to come and go. There's going to be practical problems in the church. There's going to be doctrinal problems in the church. But, but how do you deal it, particularly in practical problems when ministries seem to collide with one another, when jealousy sets in? That's what John is describing for us with John the Baptist. And so in 25 and 26, there's this spark that could have created this huge fire on the horizon that would have caused John and Jesus to separate. And if John would have changed his mind, then it really would have damaged Jesus' ministry. And here you have this Jewish person saying, there's something going on here. Look at him over there. He really appears to be more successful than you, John, or he's more or less talking to his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, and he's saying, this Jewish person is saying to them, based on purification, he, I think this guy over here named Jesus, his seems more successful. Look how many more people he has following him. And, and, and you guys, you know, you have less and less following your, your master, John the Baptist. And so here's this spark possible controversy looming on the horizon. And notice what they said in 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi. And you know it was related to numbers because of verse 26. After the Jew talked to the disciples in verse 25, John's disciples, that is, about purification, then the disciples left that Jew, and then they went to John the Baptist, and here's what they say. Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing. He's doing the same thing. And all are coming to him. What do you think they mean by that? He's more successful. we got to do something about this. Really, should it be this way? Are we doing something wrong? Are you doing something wrong? Or what can we do to get the numbers back? 
Whatever the case, there's a problem going on here. So, there's always an instigator somewhere, isn't there? Sometimes it's totally unintentional, but an instigator nonetheless. You see, what's happening here is Jesus is gaining in popularity. John the Baptist is becoming less and less popular. But I love this. Because what John does at this point is he just tells us the truth about ministry. Listen, the truth about ministers and ministering. The truth about service. The truth about the church. And so what I have in point number two, after the setting and a controversy kind of begins to break out, John the Baptist in verse 27 through 29 gives a solution to this controversy. And he begins with the principle, this maxim in verse 27 that says this, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. If you're a minister, not only of the gospel, but if you're a minister in the church with the gifts God's given you, you're only a minister because of God's grace, because of what God has given you. In other words, this, he is the source of all ministry. Principle number one. You cannot receive anything for a ministry unless God gives it to you. What a perspective. God's sovereign bestowment equipping you to do the work of the ministry. Paul picked this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn with me there, if you will, for a moment. It's, this is Paul and Apollos. The church of Corinth, this is just not too many years later, you know, maybe 30, 40 years later, and now you have Paul and Apollos on the scene, and they aren't working together, but the typical Corinth, the Christian at Corinth, always took sides with people. Well, I like his personality better than his personality. I like the way he ministers better than the way he ministers. I like Apollos better than I do Paul. Or I like Paul better than I do Apollos. That's what's going on here. And in chapter 3, Paul reminds them that it's all of God. But then we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. And he says this, let a man regard us. Now that us, that two-letter word us, is reference to Apollos and Paul. Let a man... Let you, Corinthians, regard us, whether Paul or Apollos, in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, number one, we're servants. We're servants. Verse 2, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Trustworthy. Don't focus on the numbers. Don't focus on the glamour. Don't focus on the popularity. Focus on the gift or two, or three that God has given you, and be faithful and trustworthy servant with those gifts. By the way, God bestowed them upon you. He's going to say that later on in chapter 12. Verse 3, but to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. Why did Paul write verse 3? Here's why. The Corinthians were examining Paul in light of Apollos, or they were examining Paulus' ministry in light of Paul. You see what's going on. The typical human heart, we like to compare and contrast ministers. And we begin to side with one or the other depending on what personality I connect with or what gifts I connect with. 
And what all that does is in the end is create division. But Paul's saying, wait a minute. It's a very small thing that I may be examined by you. In other words, don't examine me. Who are you? It's a very small thing compared to God examining me. You know, the one examination I'm concerned with is God's. So to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. My own self-examination doesn't really matter a whole lot in light of God's. Verse 4, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. Even though I am not conscious of me doing anything wrong or abusing the gifts, that doesn't mean I'm acquitted. That doesn't mean I might not be messing up here or there. Because God's the only one that's holy here, folks. He's the only one with perfect and righteous judgment. Not you, and Paul says, not even me. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, based upon this, verse 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time. My ministry's not even done yet. Apollos' ministry's not even done yet. The church's ministry, your ministry, is not even complete yet. So hold off the judgment. In other words, wait until the Lord comes, who will what? Both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Paul's, this is what Paul's doing. Your, your examination comes from your eyes and what you're, you're watching. But notice what he says here. God's going to examine your heart. You're not going to fool God. You might look like your, your ministry is fantastic from the outside. From the outside, look at that person's ministry. He's got thousands of people following him now. But when it comes time to that final examination, God's not going to examine us by how many people. He's not going to examine us by the numbers. He's going to examine us by what he saw in our heart. He's going to examine us by the motive that was driving me to preach, driving this person to shepherd, driving you to exercise your gift, driving you as an older woman in a younger woman's life or an older man in a younger man's life, Titus chapter 2. You see that? Motivation. And then each man's praise will come to him from who? From who? God. So say, hold off, Corinthians, on your judgmentalism. On examining me or Apollos and how we are ministering, because it really doesn't matter. It's so small, it's so minuscule. Even my examination of myself is small and minuscule. The only one in the end that's going to count is God's. Verse 6, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Here's why. So that in us, so you know he's talking about him and Apollos, verse 6, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. Now what does he mean, what is written? What he has written up to this point, written, is written, present tense, what I'm writing, chapter 3, about Paul's ministry and my ministry. That I don't exceed or go beyond what God wants me to do, has called me to do, so that Apollos doesn't go beyond what God wants him to do. Oftentimes we mess up in ministry because we get ahead of God. Or we minister in areas where God doesn't want us to minister because we think we can do it all. Preach it to myself. So that no one of you will become what? Arrogant. In behalf of one against the other. 
And that's all that does. And now look at verse 7. These words are going to resonate with our main passage. You can see the similar language here. For who regards you as superior? (laughs) This is a rebuke, by the way. Corinthian church, who regards you as superior as in your judgment? Who are you to judge? What do you have that you did not receive? There's that language. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You see, if you've not received it, then that means you're thinking that you're ministering based upon your own creativity, on your own strength, with your own ingenuity, that this, this exercise, this ministry that you're doing, just rests on you. No. Gospel ministry, church ministry, loving one another with the gifts is a result of God's grace in our lives, him giving us the gift to minister to others. You see that? And that's why there's not only no boasting in regard to the gospel, there's no boasting in regard to salvation, but there's also no boasting in regard to ministry. Wow. You see, here's the picture. In God's house, in Christ's body, there's no boasting except in the one who saved us. Because it's his salvation, it's his church, and actually, it's his ministry. Jesus says back in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And he recruits us, (laughs) adopts us, saves us, recruits us, equips us to be involved in the building of the church. We are his servants. Servants who we are going for, sharing the gospel, and as we are ministering to one another, are praising God. Because the only reason why I'm before you today, the only reason why I study, the reason why all those things is because God so worked in my life, he gave me the desire came from him. And therefore, the motive came from him. If it wasn't for him, I would already be dead in my sins. I'd be probably in hell right now. Because of the lifestyle that I lived for a while. It's all of grace. And your background doesn't have to be that rough to still say it's all of grace. You could be saved in the sandbox at age four as a wonderful little child, right? But it's still all of grace. All of grace. So verse 27, back in our main text, John Ash said, a man can be received nothing unless it has been granted him from heaven. I think we understand that. But here are some other biblical truths concerning ministry I want to bring before you to kind of fill this in. He equips us, Romans, I mean, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12. I want to write that down to remind us, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, that is gifts, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. God gives the gifts to whom he wants. Not only that, he allocates you where he wants you. Look at verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he what? Desires. You're a Grace Community Church for a reason. You have a purpose in this body. You've been equipped to fulfill that purpose, and he's placed you here to fulfill that purpose. Amen? 
We've got to see our own lives and my place in Grace Community Church through the lens of Scripture. And that's all we're doing right now at this moment. And not only that, 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6, God, Paul recognized this and he says, God makes me adequate. Excuse me. He makes me an adequate servant, an adequate minister of the gospel. Let's go ahead and write that one down. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is beautiful. Because this is in a book, 2 Corinthians, that later on in chapters like 9, 10, and 11, he's going to have to defend his apostleship. But before he, and it's going to sound like as if he's boasting, but he's being attacked. His apostleship is being attacked by people at Corinth. So no wonder earlier on in this letter, he's saying this. Listen to these words. Verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ towards God. No self-confidence here. What do you mean, Paul? Verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. I'm adequate from God because he's gifted me. I'm adequate. God makes me adequate, first of all, because he saved me. He makes me adequate in that he's turned my heart in love with him. And then he's equipped me. He's placed me in a body where he wants me to be. The adequacy comes from him. Again, there's no boasting, not only in salvation, but there's no boasting in ministry. There's no place for jealousy, therefore, when we compare ministries one to another. Look at verse 6. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What a perspective by the Apostle Paul. He understood who made him adequate. He not, I was a Benjamite. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I knew the law. He didn't go there one bit, did he? My schooling didn't make me adequate. Going to Dallas Seminary and RTS and getting a doctorate and getting a master's. Those things don't make me adequate. God does. God uses those things in the process. But I never go to you and say, please call me Dr. Pittman. Have you ever heard me say that one time? If you ever do, rebuke me, please. Besides, it's not so much, it's not all what you know, it's who you know. Right? It's how you're living. What's your lifestyle like? Anybody can recite verses, but not as many can walk the talk. And praise God, he doesn't require us to do it perfectly. Even elders are a pastor, but to a level of sanctification, whereby the congregation trusts that God is working in that person's life. That's the key. All right. I love what John does next. Look at verse 28. What does John the Baptist do next? This is what he does. He gets their focus back on Jesus. That's what he does. After the maxim in 27, he says in verse 28, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ. Let's get back on the topic, in other words, and I'm not it. It's Christ. 
He's the topic. He's the subject of all ministry. What is your spiritual gift? The subject of that spiritual gift is who? Jesus Christ. Well, I only have the gift of helps. The subject of your gift of helps is Jesus Christ. Who distributes those gifts, by the way? The Holy Spirit, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And by the way, in John chapter 16, later on in this gospel, John's going to have a picture of Jesus in the room with his disciples and preparing his disciples for his death. He's going to tell them this, and I will give you the Spirit, and he will glorify me. So when the Holy Spirit gives you a gift, it's for the purpose of exalting and glorifying Christ. I love what John does. He, he, he focuses their attention once again on Jesus. It's not on me. It's on him. That's what ministry does. Look what he does in 29. Oh, I love this. He gives us an illustration. He uses an illustration of the bridegroom and the best man, or the friend of the bridegroom, which would be equivalent to a best man, right? John the Baptist is the friend. Okay, he's the best man. Jesus is the bridegroom. Here's the picture. Let me just read 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he's here now, he's coming into the room. He's coming on the scene. He's in the picture now. He who stands and hears him, that is the best man, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Notice what he says next. So this joy of mine has been made full. I'm hearing the voice of Jesus. He's on the scene now. That's my joy. What is the role of the best man? When that bridegroom comes in, all attention is on him. As the bridegroom takes center stage, the best man walks off to the side and says, folks, there he is. That's John the Baptist's attitude. That should be the attitude of every Christian in ministry. That is the purpose of ministry. Every ministry, therefore every gift, is for the purpose of saying, there he is. Not, here I am. I'm a good helper. I'm a good preacher. I'm, I'm a good this. I'm a good that. Watch me serve. Look how hard I work. No, the gifts are never given. Ministry is never to, 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 to shed light on the one doing the ministry, but on the sovereign one who bestows the gift for the sake of ministry. That's what John does here. The Baptist gets it, doesn't he? And it, you can just hear the, the, his disciples are just going, oh. The Jew didn't get it over there. It was starting to talk about purification and numbers. And But wait a minute. We're, we're, we're out of perspective here. John the Baptist is whacking them back into biblical perspective here of what they're there for. So what John the Baptist does, just in these simple verses, in verses 27 through 30, he says, first of all, you can't get anything unless you receive it from God. So there's reception, number one. And then what does he do? He refocuses their attention. And number three, he reminds the disciples that ministry is about Christ. And because of that, that's my joy. I'm only going to be satisfied and happy and content and joyful 
when this is going on, when people are in their ministry are going, there he is. That's what my ministry is all about. It's about him. I'm ministering to you so that you will focus on him. I'm sharing the gospel so that you'll focus on him. I'm preaching and praying for you so that you would focus on him. I'm exercising my, 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 my gift of help so that you will focus on him. If you're not focusing on him, then all that I'm doing is in vain. All I'm doing is in vain. I study so that people, you, will say it's about him. Right? Yes. And I'm studying, and I'll stop and pray so that you will say, it's about him. It's not about walking out, going, preacher, at a great sermon, but walking out saying, forget the sermon. We have a great God. Wow. The groom must take center stage. And John the Baptist is telling his disciples, and I must go wait in the wings. I, just, I love that analogy. I mean, that's the perfect analogy, isn't it? You can't get any better than that. And the bridegroom and the best man. Look at verse 30. It's what Dan read for us this morning or mentioned this morning. He must increase, but I must increase. Now, doesn't verse 30 make sense? Right? That's what it's all about. Jesus must become greater in the eyes of the people, and I must become lesser, disciples. That's what John the Baptist is telling his guys. He's going, this is why I'm so happy. I'm happy and joyful. This is my joy. I'm being full of joy, the end of verse 29, because there are more people following Jesus over on the other side of the mountain and getting baptized and less over here with me. This is what my ministry is all about. It's not a pride issue. It's not a jealousy issue. It's glory in Jesus issue is what this is about. Wow. This is fourth R. I must retire in the wings. Now, I do not believe for a minute there's any spiritual retirement. There's no spiritual reti- retirement plan for Christians is heaven, not on earth. Amen? Come on. The earth is, you hear commercial after commercial, you've got to retire, retire. The earlier, the more successful you are, that's worldly. But in the church, there is no retirement plan. And now, after verse 30, it's only natural at this point that John the Baptist would what? Expound on the uniqueness of Christ. And that's what he does here in verses 31 through 35. He expounds for a couple sentences on the uniqueness and the greatness of Christ because he is the focal point of ministry. It's not about a church that's about the church is, is an unhealthy church. And sometimes if it's long enough, that church will go apostate. Grace Community Church, if we're ever about Grace Community Church, we are failures. Grace Community Church is about Christ. It's about Him. Amen? But a lot of churches fall in the cracks. They fall through the cracks or fall into the temptation of existing for themselves. How do you know they do that? They refer to the past all the time. That's one way. Well, we used to do it. Let's do it again. They become focused on let's be who we are as a church by doing what we used to do successfully. Wrong. We're about Christ. We're about Christ. 
You also notice this going on when people come to Christ and the person who led them to Christ gets all the praise for it. I've seen people go up to people or go to a ministry. Oh, they're saved because of VBS. They're saved because of this program. Or the, no, they're saved because of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, who says, you must be born again, and the Spirit does that work. That's how one is saved. Yes, we are the means by which the Holy Spirit works. But even the means recognizes It's the work of the Spirit. Amen? So, this is what he does. He talks about his unique origin. This is the third point. The subject of the matter is Christ. Now, notice, he he just, in 27, 28, and 29, he just turns it all around on his disciples and says it's about Christ. And then in verse 31, he starts talking about how unique he is. Listen to this. He who comes from above is above all. He's talking about Jesus. He came from above. John chapter 1. The incarnation. He who is of the earth is from the earth. It speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Here's one word that explains this. The preeminence of Christ. First place in everything, the greatest above all. What John is describing to his disciples is that we must have Jesus first place in ministry, in our motive, in everything that we do. That's why we don't mind when more people are following him. He is the bridegroom. We want to back off and say, there he is. It's all about him. The church should always put itself in a position where it says it's all about Christ. And it, and a drop of a hat ready verbally to give God the glory. It take none for itself. So in 31, 32, and 33, it begins by, he's unique in origin. He comes from heaven. Verse 32, what he has seen and heard of that he testifies. No one receives his testimony. And then there seems to be a contradiction here. Look at verse 33. seems to contradict verse 32. 33 says, He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Okay, John, which is it? No one receives his testimony? Or he who has received his testimony? What's the difference? Well, no one receives his testimony apart from being born again, apart from the work of the Spirit, unless God moves no one receives the testimony of Christ. Period. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You're never going to receive Christ without new birth. It's impossible. That's how deep and horrible and wretched and ugly and miserable sin is. It totally blinds. And apart From the work of the Spirit, a sovereign work of God, the skills will never come down for us to see and receive. But after his unique origin, he talks about his unique relationship in 34 and 35. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. There's a couple of things here. Number one, he says he's sent by the Father. For whom God has sent. Number one, he has sent. What else does he do? He also speaks the words of God. You see, Christ came from heaven. So who, anybody else take, anyone else like him, by the way? Anybody else that came down from heaven? 
other than Christ. So Christ spent eternity with the Father, right? And by the way, he is God. But let's just look at Christ as, you know, coming down from heaven. And so for eternity past, he's, him the Father, had been talking for forever. Yeah, kind of, yeah, forever, okay. Who's going to know about God better than the Son? That's his point here. This is why we can trust every word of Jesus. Because he's been with the Father for all eternity. What other religion has this thing? It's just nowhere. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives a spirit without measure. There's the third one. Christ has a spirit without measure. Ad infinitum. You cannot measure how filled he is with the spirit. It's immeasurable. 34, for he whom God, excuse me, 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Number four, he loves the Son. And number five, the Father has given Christ all authority. The authority to forgive, the authority to save, and the authority to give judgment, as we learn throughout the Gospel of John. Incredible. In other words, John is saying this. He is preeminent in origin. He is preeminent in word, verse 34. He speaks the words of God, and he is preeminent in authority to save and to judge. He has first place in everything. Philippians says it this way. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is preeminent, that he is first place. He's number one. There's none like him. Even the lost folks, souls that never came to Christ on earth will have to bow before him because he is a sovereign of all. King of kings and Lord of lords. That day is coming. Colossians. Let me read to you what Colossians, how he, Paul puts it in the book of Colossians. Excuse me. Verse 15 through 18. Listen to these words. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything's created for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. We breathe and exist today because Christ himself keeps his creation going. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that here it is, here's the purpose, so that he himself will come to have first place, be preeminent in everything, in the world and in the church. Amongst believers and unbelievers, he's king of kings and lord of lords. So how appropriate it is that John ends this section with verse 36 by saying these words, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But, contrary, he who does not obey the Son. Oh, notice the comparison there. You see, when we preach the gospel, we share the gospel, we we are commanding people to believe. And they've got to obey. You've got to come to Christ. God is commanding you to come to Christ. Yes, he wants you, and he's commanding to you. There's not an option here. You're going to remain in judgment or you're coming to Christ. And there is no option here, just like there wasn't earlier on in chapter 3. There is no alternative, folks. 
Narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. God's mercy is not wide. There are not many ways to God. There's the Christian way, there's the Islam way, and there's this way and that way. No, there's one way. Or Jesus is the biggest liar that ever walks the face of the earth because in 14.6 he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Not another religion, not another man, not another anything. It's by me alone. It's very narrow in that sense. So that's how John wrapped this up with his disciples. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God remains, abides on him. You know, when Jesus cleansed the temple, we got a glimpse of the wrath of God. When Jesus turned water into wine and when he did a sign to heal somebody, he got a glimpse of the love of God. But I want you to remember this. On the cross, we get full view of both the love of God and the wrath of God. So when you talk about the cross of Christ, don't just talk about for God so loved the world that he gave. Talk about how the wrath of God crushed his son because yours and my sins were upon him. And so the cross is the perfect and fullest picture of both the perfection of God's love and the perfection of God's wrath and judgment coming upon, coming together on the cross of Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel. How fitting it was for John to close this section. Not the writer of John, but I think John the Baptist is still talking here, writing, or excuse me, saying to his disciples, you've got to believe him. You've got to believe him. So what's John saying? You've got to believe him. I'm going off to the wings now. I'm getting less and less. He's the preeminent one. He's what my ministry has been about for all these months or years. Here's why I preach so much. Here's why I suffered so much. Here's why I exercise this gift or that gift. This is why I, as an older man, pour into younger men or an older woman pour into younger woman. It's because of this right here. It's because of the analogy, let it stick in your brain, that Christ is the bridegroom and we are his friends. And the greatest joy we get is when the bridegroom takes center stage in someone else's life. That's what we learn from John the Baptist. Beloved, that's discipleship. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to be in ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this morning because we thank you and praise you for Christ. He is the one that makes this hour. He is the one that makes this day. He is why we gather together on Sunday. We celebrate this day. We meet this day because this is the day he rose from the dead. Oh, God, every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday, I pray. And and he would just be exalted in our hearts and with our lips, with our minds and our attitudes and our motives. And this exaltation of Christ would just overflow in our lives during the work week. When we're prone to forget about him, God, get us back in your word to remind ourselves ourselves of him once again. May he be the preeminent one at work. May he be the preeminent one in the car or in the store when I'm in the checkout line when I'm exercising my gift, when I'm helping somebody, when I'm loving others. God, please, may the bridegroom always take center stage in our lives. 
so that people will see more of him and less of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.